Well, I do trust that you will allow me just a few moments to express my gratitude, first of all, for the elders to allow me to occupy this pulpit once again. It's been a real joy to be with you. I think it's been a prelude and a foretaste of heaven, seeing people that I've not seen for some time. Uh, I think it's the poet Shelley who says, make new friends but keep the old. The new are silver, the old are gold. Well, it's nice to make new friends, it's nice to meet the old friends, and I will take my greetings from you to my own church in England, or in, just in North Wales, in the United Kingdom, who will be in the middle of their evening worship at this moment. So thank you for your friendship, for your fellowship, and it is good to be back. This, I think the ten years that we were here were the happiest years of my wife and I, our married life. It was a wonderful time, so I want to thank you. Well, now, let me invite you, because I have a difficult time at this moment to keep you all awake. So um, <laughs> I crave your patience and your indulgence and your attention. Um, I'm going to read from the book of Exodus and the 33rd chapter. Exodus chapter 33. It's not specifically uh, a communion table sermon. But I want to look at an incident that happened in the life of Moses here in Exodus 33. E.M. Bounds, in his classic book, Power Through Prayer, and if you haven't got it, I would recommend it to you, he says this, Men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. And that's what you see happening in this chapter, and especially in this whole book of Exodus. God is preparing his man, and that man is named Moses. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones believed that this chapter was one of the most important chapters in the whole of the Old Testament. It's probably familiar to most of you Christians because of the great promise which it contains. And I want to look at that promise as we look at the chapter in a moment. But let's read the chapter together. Exodus chapter 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, 
and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the Tabernacle of Meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the Tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the Tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the Tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please, show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And of course the Lord is speaking in figurative language there. And what I want to do is to draw some lessons as we go along in this particular passage because the promise that I mentioned earlier is given to you in verse 14 and you may well have it highlighted in your Bible. My presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And so if you want a promise to take you into the future of this year, then you can't find a better promise than that. My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. It's a glorious promise. And as we look at it today, I want us to see the deep significance that that promise holds and some of the lessons that it teaches us. So first of all, I want to focus on the circumstances in which the promise was given. 
And then look at the means by which the promise was secured and then some of the blessings that the promise conveys. And I hope to make some application as we go along. But first of all, the circumstances in which this particular promise was given. And I wonder whether many of you have fully appreciated the astonishing circumstances in which that promise was originally given. Not just the immediate circumstances, but also the wider circumstances. And when you consider the ultimate picture, it's quite clear that the divine purpose in all of redemption is that God intends to dwell with and to dwell among his people. That is the whole purpose of redemption in the whole of the Bible from beginning to end. That God's purpose is to dwell with and among his people. And that is sometimes described by the theologians as the imminence of God. As somebody who simply stated it says, the Lord redeems in order to inhabit The Lord redeems in order to inhabit. That is the supreme intention of God's redemptive purposes in both the Old and the New Testaments. That he might dwell with and that he might even dwell within his people. And that is what made Moses the kind of man that he became. How Moses had power over himself. He had power over men. He had power over Pharaoh. But supremely, he had power with God himself as he came before God in intercessory prayer, all of which became a reality in Moses' life because God had covenanted to be with him. And there is such a thing as what Stuart Olliott describes in one of his books as the witness of God, the witness of God. If you read, particularly in your Old Testament, Men like Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Joshua and Samuel. And you will read that expression. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with Samuel and didn't let any of his words fall to the ground. So it's this withness of God that is the issue here in this chapter. And that is the great need of each and every one of us, especially as you anticipate the future. You want to know that God is with you. Now let me remind you of what God had previously said to Moses when he met with Moses at the burning bush. You find it in Exodus chapter 3. And the Lord said this, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. I know their sorrows, so I have come down to deliver them. And then you may remember that when Moses pleaded his inability to do what God was asking him, the Lord gave him a similar promise. I will certainly be with you. I will be with you. And that was the assurance that Moses needed more than anything else for what the task was in front of him. And so the following narratives from chapter 3 up until this chapter, they reveal how that promise was fulfilled By the Lord being with Moses. The Lord was with Moses in everything that he did. So when you come here to chapter 33, 
you have a repetition of that very promise. But the question begs itself, why is it and how is it that that promise comes to be made again at this point in time? Well, let me try and explain to you. In the previous chapter, in chapter 32, you will have there the record of how the children of Israel backslid and they made a golden calf and they worshipped the golden calf. And one of the terrible consequences of that incident was that the presence of God was removed from them in a very definite way. And that's something that we need to keep constantly in our own minds as believers. Let me quote something to you from C.S. Lewis. Many of you will have read this before in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's an interesting discussion between Mr. Beaver about Aslan the lion. And Mr. Beaver said, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe, but he's good. He is the king. And that is a timely reminder to us that the God who redeems his people is a God of infinite holiness. And that means that he has to be revered. And we must never ever presume upon God as the Israelites did here. Some of you have a favorite hymn. It's one of my favorite hymns, which is in the Trinity hymnal. Oh, love that will not let me go. It's a wonderful hymn. But the love that will not let us go is the love that will not let us off either. Pardon for sin doesn't necessarily remove the consequences of sin. And that's what you see happening here. In those first six verses, the Lord has made it quite clear that things were not going to be as they had been before. He would still be with them. He's not abandoning them. But now it is going to be a withdrawn presence. The possibilities are still there. The land of milk and honey is still being held out to them. And the Lord said that he would still vindicate them. He will drive out their enemies. But the priceless privilege of intimate fellowship was going to be withdrawn and withheld. There was to be a narrowing down of the relationship. And they would be deprived of the sweet companionship as far as God was concerned. And it is possible for God to chasten his people from time to time with a withdrawal of the sense of his presence. And that chastisement is a serious lesson to each and every one of us that God is not prepared to compromise with our sin. Nor is he prepared to dwell among a people who are no longer willing to deal with their sin 
in the same radical manner that he deals with sin. So here are these people that they have the awareness of the sadness as they begin to see the consequences of making that idol and worshipping it. And in the making of that golden calf, what was happening is that they are displaying a terrible blasphemy against the God of Israel. And that is something that is extremely serious. But these Israelites thought that it wasn't serious. And that awareness is being impressed upon them all the more when they see what Moses did with his, what is described as his tent. And you see it here in chapter 33 and verse 10. Obviously it's not the tabernacle because the instructions of the tabernacle, the detailed plans have just been given to Moses and it's not yet been constructed. It's described as the tent of meeting. In previous generations, certainly in our country, it may have been in your country, some of the nonconformists would describe their places of worship as the meeting house. And they meant by that not so much that they would meet one another there, but that's where they would meet with God. And this is how it was with Moses. This was the tent where he met with the Lord. So you've got to try and imagine the scene as these people all stood and watched Moses going out of the camp and then he enters the tent and they were aware that something significant was happening in what was going, taking place there. Moses was meeting with the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. The one who is glorious in holiness and fearful in praises. And Moses, as well as the people, could not look at that and think that that is something incidental. That was something that was absolutely monumental. It was something astonishing. It was something awe-inspiring as they realized what was taking place. Moses is meeting with Almighty God. The very same God that you meet with in this place, Sunday by Sunday. The very same Lord, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, a God who does wonders. So surely that should be our mindset every time we come to worship. That this is not something incidental. We are coming in that door, in that door, in order to meet with God. So ask yourself the question, is that how I think every Lord's Day when I get up? Is that how I think about attending worship? That I'm coming to meet the one who is the sovereign king of the universe, before whom the very angels in heaven veil their faces. And we need to grasp something of the solemn privilege of being able to come into the presence of the Lord of hosts. That will affect our demeanor. That will affect your timekeeping. That will affect how you behave. That will will affect your posture. You are before the King of glory. It is not incidental. It is monumental. And these Israelites are sorely chastened 
for not giving the Lord true worship and due reverence. Now you will notice in verse 8 how the people with great awareness, serious attention, standing at the door of their tents, they stand there in awe and in wonder. And there is a particular implication in what Moses is doing. He took the tent and he pitched it outside of the main camp. And that, to my mind, is a significant gesture on his part in relation to what Israel had done in making the golden calf. They had forfeited the immediate presence of God. So now there is an estrangement between them and God, and it's being symbolized by the tent being the tent of meeting outside of the camp. It's a solemn visual reminder that there are times when we can lose great blessing as a result of our sinning against the Lord. So what else was Moses doing? He's obviously doing this under the direction of God himself. The Lord is indicating that this meeting place, although he has been firm with these people, he would still be entreated of by these people. There was a man who was a minister in Govan in Glasgow where I used to minister, church along from where I ministered. He was the professor of philosophy at Glasgow University when he was 19, highly respected by Oliver Cromwell, had a remarkable ministry throughout Scotland, died of tuberculosis when he was 26. And this is what he says. Love takes on anger as the last remedy. And if it prevails, it's as glad to put it off as to take it on. The sign of God's loving and kind presence departs from them. Yet all is not lost. He goes far off, but not out of sight, that you may always follow him. And if you follow him, he will stand still. So God is demonstrating to these people that there was still a place where they could go and worship and pray to him if they did it in the right way. And this is what Moses intended to do himself. And he says, anybody else among the Israelites, you are free to do the very same. You can go to the place of worship. You can pray to the Lord. But you must do it in the right way. And that's precisely what Moses did. And that is one of the great witnesses of the gospel. That you go into a place where you worship God. So that the unbelieving world outside can see that those people who claim to be Christians, they make it their business to go regularly to the worship of God and to the place of worship. And so they don't take the place of worship casually. They don't say, well, I'll go if I'm feeling like it. They don't say, well, I'll go in the morning, but I'm not going in the evening. They don't say, well, I'll worship then, but I won't worship then. They take their worship seriously. And the world outside can see that you take worship seriously. Now look at what it says at verse 9 to verse 11. No longer did Moses go to the top of the mountain to meet with the Lord. The Lord, in this act of great kindness and condescension, he comes down and he meets with Moses. And the people stand at the door of their tents, looking toward the tent of meeting, worshipping, and they saw that something happened. And the Lord's presence 
symbolized by the pillar of cloud, comes down and it hovers over the door of the tent. That cloud which had been withdrawn as a result of the displeasure of God now reappears, showing that the Lord was pleased with Moses and he was pleased with what Moses was doing. And then the Lord gives a further indication that he was pleased with Moses because he comes to Moses and he speaks to him and it's described as speaking to him as face to face as a man speaks with his friend. It's a remarkable statement concerning Moses. It's describing this intimacy that Moses had, this wonderful privilege with the Lord God Almighty. And that, I believe, has a profound significance. It's showing clearly and plainly to the Israelites that the blessing that they had forfeited was still with Moses, this man, the man that they had rejected and the man that they had spurned. But these Israelites knew that he was the man who prayed for them. And now they know that God is with him and he is not with them. Have you never been with some people and it's evident that there is something about them that marks them out from the rest? You can't put your finger on it, but you know that there is something different. They're the kind of people that others would be careful about how they spoke. They're the kind of people that you would be very careful as to how you behaved in their presence. And they are patently and palpably godly people. It's the witness of God. God is with them. Now, did you notice in verse 10 that when the people became aware that they were in the presence of God, we are told that they were constrained to worship. And that, to my mind, again, is extremely significant. There is a passage in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul speaks about their gatherings together for worship in the church at Corinth. And then in verse 23 of that chapter, his concern was how they were using their spiritual gifts, especially the gifts of tongues and the effect that it would have upon unbelievers coming into the place of worship. Listen to what he says. Therefore, he says, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? And then listen to what he says at the end of the chapter in verse 40. It's a very, very important statement. Therefore, let all things in your worship, let all things be done decently and in order. Have you not been in some churches where there is a sense of the presence of God even before the service begins and it remains throughout the service? I think we had a sense of that in the service earlier. But in other places you can go and the striking thing is the absence of God that you feel that God is not in this place. There is a casualness, there is a carelessness, there is a sense of something lacking. And it can only be described as being other than reverence. You know that there is something radically wrong. Now, I'm thankful 
my experience in this church and my experience in the past two Sundays is that there is a time. There is a time for greeting one another. But there is a time when the piano plays and the notice is put up to prepare to meet God. And so the hustle becomes a hush. And that's how it ought to be as you prepare to worship God. And worship simply means bowing before God, taking the lower place. You are here to acknowledge him and to worship him. You are not here to enjoy yourself. You may enjoy it, but man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we come here to worship the Almighty God. So these were some of the circumstances. Now look at the means by which this promise was given. And the principal means by which it was secured were through the intercessory prayers of Moses. You look at what it says from verse 12 to verse 15. Moses pleading with God. And once again, you see how Moses, in his prayer life, is a type or a picture of the one who is greater than Moses, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It comes out repeatedly throughout the whole of Moses' life. Do you remember in the warfare with the Amalekites, Moses went up into the mountain. Why? To pray for the success of Joshua, the Israelites in the battle. He prayed all day for the help of God to be given to these people. And then you remember at Mount Sinai when the people were afraid to draw near to God. They asked Moses, Moses, you go, you pray for us. And then after they've made this golden calf, Moses was willing to lay down his life for these people. And he's pleading for them with God on their behalf. So in verse 11, you're given a deeper insight into that extraordinary relationship of friendship between the Lord and Moses. And the cloud descends on the tent as Moses enters. It's a token that Moses, the Lord is pleased with what Moses is doing. And Moses can draw near and he can communicate. The Lord is encouraging Moses to draw near. He's urging him, if you like, come into a deeper fellowship and communion. But you can't help but recognize that there is this openness between God and between Moses. And that is something that constitutes the basis of any friendship. There must be openness between the two parties if that friendship is going to grow and develop. There must be a transparent openness. True in married life, there must be a transparent openness between the husband and the wife if that marriage is going to be blessed. So Moses is pressing in upon God with a holy boldness. And you can never imagine that Moses became over-familiar with God. But he speaks with God. And you get something of what's passed between them. We're even given the details of what Moses said to the Lord. So let me make two points from that verse 12 and 13. Two things that you notice particularly. First of all, some of you men listen. First of all, Moses' prayer was very brief. He didn't use many words. And even supposing that those verses are summing up the gist of what he said, it is still short and to the point. My daughter went to a church 
a few weeks ago where the opening prayer was 45 minutes long. And when you pray, you men, do the praying mainly, don't try and educate God. He knows that Jesus lived. He knows that Jesus died. He knows that Jesus rose from the dead. But how often we tell him, you know, Lord, Jesus died on the cross. You know, Lord, he rose from the dead. He does know that, so don't educate him. It's a waste of words. So be brief. And the other lesson is surely, it's not the length of the prayer that matters. It is the character of the person who's praying it. What you say, or what you are when you say what you say in prayer, is more important than the prayer itself. And if Moses hadn't been the kind of man that he was, then he would not have been able to move the hand of God. And here is a man who is open before God, and with absolute integrity, he comes before God, and pleading God's own words to him in a very, very daring way. He's holding on to the words of God. I know you by name and you have found, I've found grace in your sight. And then he's saying, well, well, now, Lord, treat me as someone who has found grace in your It's a very daring and a very bold way to say. But God knew the character of Moses. And Moses already knows God. More than any man, I suppose, before or since, Moses knew God. He spoke to him as a friend speaks to his friend. Moses knows God, but he is not over-familiar with God. And then he says, he pleads in verse 13, show me your way. He wants to know the purposes and the plans of God. He wants to be sure that God was going to be with them as they set their sights upon the land of Canaan. The Lord has previously said that he would not go with them, but he said, I will send an angel. And Moses is now pleading with God and saying, you must come with us. I cannot, we cannot go up without you. And then he says, these people, Lord, are your people. So it's your glory, it's your honor that's at stake in being involved with them. And then he says, now, show me, show me your way. In other words, I want to know your plans and your purposes. A very daring thing. And Moses is the man who later says to the people, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the works of this law. But here is Moses saying, I want to know the secret things. as far as we are concerned, where do you get to know the purposes and the plans of God? It is through reading Holy Scripture. It is through sitting under the exposition of the Word of God. And I say this without being prompted by your pastors, that you have a unique and unusual and a very high privilege of sitting under the ministry of God that goes from this pulpit week by week. Don't take it for granted. If you take the goodness of God for granted, it is sin. 
but you have the wonderful privilege of having this word of God opened and expounded and applied to you week by week. Don't underestimate it. Value it and pray for these pastors. Now look at verse 15. Moses knows his helplessness, his inability. He can't do anything at all without the God. He wants it without God. He wants absolute certainty. And he's not assuming, you see, that God would go with him. And he's not assuming that God, what God was going to do with his people. So let me apply that as well, because very often we can assume that God will do certain things. We can assume if we do this that God will be with us. We can assume that if we go there that God will be with us. Don't assume anything of the sort. You need to make sure that you are in the will of God. How many politicians and statesmen in your country and in ours assume that things will work out all right? They assume that God will bless them if they believe in God. You don't hear in the United States, and we don't hear in the United Kingdom, a call in these times of crisis that we should have a day of prayer. No, we don't need God. We can do it ourselves. They assume that it will all work out in the end. Well, it may not all work out in the end. To assume things is a terrible thing. And here is Moses saying, Lord, I don't assume, but I want something extra. Listen to Lord Jones. He says, here is a man asking for something special, something unusual, something additional. On the human level, we all know something about this. It's a great thing to be told that you are loved. You may know that you are loved, but that's not enough. You like to be told that you are loved. It's something additional, something extra. There is nothing like it. And that's what Moses is crying out for. I know you. I know your grace. I know your kindness. I know your love. But I want more. And he pleads for God's character. You do it because you are God. And we want to know that your presence is with us. And so the promise comes. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And that is the promise of the new covenant as well as the old. God says to every child of God, I will be with you. Don't presume. Don't react with undue reverence. Don't take things for granted. Don't think that that is something incidental. It's monumental. Don't neglect the worship of this God. And God says, I will be with you. When you go into that situation, I'll be with you. When you go into that illness, I'll be with you. When you stand at that open grave, I'll be with you. When you change jobs, I'll be with you. When that sudden disaster comes upon you, I will be with you. When you reach old age, I will be with you. When you're starting your married life, I will be with you. It is the most glorious thing to know the presence of God. But let me close by saying this. Sometimes you may go to a funeral and you hear people talking about the person who has died. And they use this kind of language and they will say, oh, he was a wonderful Christian. 
He devoted his life to other people. Devoting your life to other people is not a sign that a person is a true Christian. There are many people who are not Christians who devote their lives to other people. Moses reached the point where he lived not for the Israelites. He didn't live for other people. He lived for him. And it's when you can live your life for him. And he may ask you to take the knife to the throat of your own inclinations and bury your life in a church such as this because you live for him. He may ask you to go to the other side of the world to serve him. But if you are living for him, you'll do it. And when you see Paul writing to the Corinthian church, the church that maligned him, the church that said all kinds of things about him, you read 2 Corinthians and you will find it coming out again and again and again. He lives for them and he lives for him. And I remember putting those two phrases on the wall of my bedroom when I went through a very, very difficult time. Why am I in this church? It's for them. And it's for him. And God says, if you live like that, I will be with you. And I will give you my peace. Let's bow together in prayer. Let us all pray. Our Father, we do bow before you and we bless you for who you are. We thank you that you have given to us your inscripturated word. We thank you that we are able to come to the open word and hopefully with an open mind that we may hear your voice speaking to us. We thank you for this pulpit, that the word of God has sounded forth faithfully from this very pulpit for many years. And we pray that it may continue to do so. Bless this church, the elders, the office bearers, the congregation. May they know what it is, week by week, to know that they are coming into the presence of God. And may they have that felt presence among them. And we ask that you will bless the ministry of the word. Build your people up in their most holy faith. Add to this church, such as should be saved. And may your name receive all the honour and all the praise and all the glory. Bless us now as we come to partake of the Lord's table. How we thank you for our blessed Saviour and all that he has accomplished for us. Hear our prayers and receive our thanks. We ask it in his worthy name. Amen.